always like to quote uh, sources, at least point to who it is that I'm, I'm quoting, lest I pretend to think that I'm, I'm cleverer than I am. <laughs> uh, but I can't remember. It's, you're generally safe. You could say it was Calvin or Edwards or Spurgeon's always a good one. I think this was a Spurgeon illustration. It's, it's just generally safe to go by Spurgeon. But Spurgeon quoted other people as well. Uh, that's a different story. Anyway, uh, we'll say it was Spurgeon gave an illustration, certainly not the first biblical, and then you think of Pilgrim's Progress, the Christian life being one of a journey, a journey that is leading toward a destination, right? It's not just the journey, it's, it's where we are headed. Um, for John Bunyan's Pilgrim, named Christian, it was the celestial city that he needed to keep his eye on in his mind. And in this illustration that I believe, again, it was Spurgeon that gave talked about the fact that we're on a journey headed toward a, a place, a destination of probably a holiday, a, a beautiful, wonderful place of, of rest and abundance. That's um, a long journey, though, so you have to stop and you spend the night somewhere. And so in this illustration that, that he gave, stop at sort of this uh, kind of junky inn. We could think of a random roadside motel that it's just too late to kind of continue, so you have to stop and Maybe nice enough, but it's really not that great of a place to stop. And in the illustration, he talks about the fact that so many Christians sort of settle on this roadside inn or motel, um, forgetting about the journey, forgetting about the destination that they're heading to, and then start to just settle and be content with so much less than where they're actually headed, taking up residence in a place that's not our final home. Uh, I want to focus today on what is our eternal home, and what is our destination for the journey of life that we are on. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus was in an upper room of a house celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. The Apostle John records for us a lengthy talk, uh, not really a sermon, it's an intimate conversation that he's having uh, Jesus is having with his disciples. There are important things that he wanted to say, things that he wanted to teach them before his death and before his ascension into heaven. We heard the beginning of that read this morning from John 13, knowing that he was, he was going away. His hour had come to depart out of this world and to return to the Father. He tells them this. He tells them, among other things, that he is going to go away from them, returning to the Father, and that they cannot follow him where he is going yet. They will be separated from each other, Jesus from his disciples, for a time. And this is obviously troubling to them. You can imagine the last three years or so, they had been together, Jesus and his disciples, constantly going up and down throughout uh, the territories of Israel and different places, teaching and ministering together. They were, they were uh, depending on Jesus for guidance. Here's the town we're going to go to next. Uh, they wanted to stay. He wanted to go, so they went. It wasn't a, a round table like Arthur and his knights. It was Jesus and those who followed him. So they depended on Jesus for guidance. They depended on Jesus for wisdom. They enjoyed his company, just being able to spend that time together. And now it sounds like all of this was going to come to a very abrupt end, and it was. Of course, Jesus knows their thoughts, and he knows their feelings. He understands why they are troubled, and so he responds to them in this way. Um, we're not going to be spending our time just in John 14. You can have that open. I'll have passages up. I'd recommend more writing them down to look at later than trying to, to flip uh, back and forth to follow along. But we'll spend a little bit of time in John 14 as we begin this. Right in the middle of, of this um, 
upper room discourse or teaching time or conversation following his washing the disciples' feet that we read. They're troubled that he's going to leave. This is what he says, John 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. According to this passage, this place where Jesus is going is his father's house. The Bible refers to this place where God dwells as heaven. That's a familiar word for us, I, I'm sure. Some would consider heaven to just be an idea um, or just an ideal or a place of mythology that doesn't actually exist. But time and again in the Bible, heaven is spoke of as an actual, literal place. Now, as the Bible comes to us from God himself, who knows? Uh, we would do better to listen to him that's saying it is a place than to listen to fellow humans who haven't been there, uh, saying it's not a place, right? Heaven is an actual, literal place, even if it doesn't exist in what we could call the physical universe. It's a place where people go, a place where they live, a location as real as, but a bit more interesting than Hurricane West Virginia. According to the Bible, including the words of Jesus here, this real place called heaven is the eternal, forever, unending, final home of all who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It is our destination. In Matthew 6, heaven is the place where we are to store up permanent treasures for ourselves rather than laying up temporary destructible treasures here on earth, things that could be, I don't know, contained in boxes and wrapped up with paper and uh, played with for a few days. Lay up treasures in heaven, Jesus says. First, Peter. Peter had heard Jesus teach on these things, and later in a letter that he writes in First Peter, he follows this up saying that believers have an inheritance, treasure, that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, kept in heaven for you. Uh, there are things that are kept from, from, from children for children, knowing that they, they would break them, uh, but they will get them eventually. Uh, my, my mom has a cup uh, for each of my sisters and I, a little silver cup or tin, I don't know what it is, because I've never actually gotten to hold it. I'm 37 years old now, and I still have not received this cup. I understand as a child, so we always joke that when I get into their house, take, well, they're not here. They're out there. Maybe I should do that. No, they're probably watching. Uh, Kept, kept for me, but maybe just not uh, in my possession. Well, we don't have our full inheritance right now. There's, this is another, that would be another sermon. We have a down payment of our inheritance, a guarantee that we'll receive something in the Holy Spirit, but we don't have our full inheritance now. It's kept for us in heaven. Then in Colossians chapter 3, heaven is the place where our minds or our hearts, not just what we think about, but our hearts, what we love, what some have called our affections, where our minds, our hearts, our affections are to be set or, or focused rather than loving and living for the things that are on earth. We are here, but our hearts shouldn't be set on this. What, what we treasure, what we love, what we hold, that's... Um, 
that is to be in heaven. Where our treasure is, that which we love the most, that which we long for, that which we live for, what we treasure, that's where our hearts will be. Jesus said again in Matthew chapter six, not here, but there, in heaven, our final destination. Without question, the Bible presents heaven as a place where we are headed as Christians and a place that we are to look forward to, a place to be excited about, a place that can motivate us in times of temptation and comfort us in times of suffering. You know, Christians used to think and talk about heaven a lot more than we do now. It's a very, very common theme throughout church history. doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And I wonder, perhaps, if it's because we are so comfortable here on earth that our minds and hearts are set here rather than there. This is not a 21st century, it is a 21st century American problem, no question, but it's not a uniquely 21st century American problem. It was a first century Colossian problem as well. It spans for all uh, believers, all humans to be struggling with this. And so it's to be expected that our hearts would be set on things of earth, even though that's, that's sinful, even though it shouldn't be. Uh, we understand that it is, because otherwise if it wasn't a common Christian problem, problem, then Paul wouldn't have told the Colossians to set their minds heavenward. Right? You don't, some things you don't need to be told to do if it's, just, if it's automatic, if it's um, natural, but natural for us is sin. Um, so we need to be reminded of that which the Spirit is working in us. It's the end of a year, which naturally lends itself to looking forward, wondering what the next year will hold. What will we, what will we gain uh, what will we lose? I mean, probably two years ago at this time, we were all excited about what a new year would hold. And then in the last year and a half or so, we've started to be like, what's going to happen next, <laughs> right? That's valuable. We cannot be certain about anything related to 2022. Even that we, any of us, will actually experience anything in 2022, but I want to take the curiosity that we have for the future, perhaps the excitement that we have about what the next year could hold for us, I want to redirect it to something greater, something more exciting, uh, and something absolutely certain, which is heaven, our eternal home. You can't just be excited about something here. We should take excitement about here, which is how God created us to be, push it to that which is greatest, which is there our eternal home. In John 14, the passage that we read, Jesus comforted his disciples by promising them that he would come back for them. He would come back for them and he would bring them home to heaven with him, to heaven, to the place in his father's house that he has prepared for them. Like their name on the door of those rooms. So I want to walk through two glorious truths today, two glorious truths about our eternal home in heaven. In our eternal home, we will be first with God, and second, we will be without sin. Two of the glorious truths that we can look forward to about our destination. We will be with God, we will be without sin. First, we will be with God. It's not heaven if he's not there. 
as in it's not a destination worth arriving at. Spending eternity. You could think of things that you would enjoy, and you could think about enjoying them for a really long time. Eventually, if it took you a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years, it would get old. I don't even think it would take that long. And so heaven without God isn't heaven. It's because God, one of the reasons that it's so glorious for us to be with God and that being something that's worth talking about and thinking about because of who God is. He is the glorious one and glory, worth, beauty, attractiveness, desirability, it all centers in him. One author wrote that the single most powerful attraction and the highest reward of heaven will be that God's glory is permanently on display there in all its full resplendence. The brightness shining of the glory of God, that's both, you know, think of the, the sun on a clear day, that's both attractive but also too much for us to handle, but yet we still are drawn to it. And again, it's just a picture, a hint of that which is God's glory fully on display. We could look at, at um, one of the disciples like John talking about the fact that he saw Jesus, saw his glory shine like the dazzling brightness of the sun. And he didn't say, I, I want to get away. He said, can we stay here? Can we build? Can I put up some tents? This is good. <laughs> Seeing your glory, this is good. He desired that. That is, that is a truth that we have about heaven as we will see God in his glory. We can see the glorious God in heaven clearly from true biblical accounts of those who have seen that marvelous place. This is a, this is a whole other part that I'll try to, uh, there's always so many paths to get distracted on. I had a, uh, a professor teaching on preaching who said, you know, here was, here was where he was on his outline, and if he stepped to the side, he called it his sandbox that he would play in. It's like he would leave his notes and start talking about something else, and he's like, now I need to get back here. So I'm going to try to not go off on those paths but those who have gone to heaven and then come back and talk about it and say, it's like, oh, look at the rainbows and think about the unicorns and I saw all these other things. They've missed, I don't believe that they've gone to heaven because they've missed the point. If you saw heaven, what you'd want to talk about is the glory of God. Okay? That's what happens in, in biblical accounts. So anybody who goes to heaven and doesn't talk about God just didn't go to heaven. Like, it, it just cannot be. Um, Isaiah did see heaven, though. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he writes about this for us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These angels each had six wings. Two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, in praise to the only thing worth praising in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and certainly heaven is full of his glory as well. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is not the only one who had a glimpse into God's throne room in heaven. Ezekiel had one as well. Ezekiel has so many interesting images. Just try to, try to picture more than try to assign what exactly is he talking about here. There are these... Uh, these spirits, these angels that Ezekiel sees, and he says, above the expanse over their heads, there was the, the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire. 
And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow or the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And the apostle John, centuries and centuries later, uh, receives a vision as well. Revelation chapter one, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. God is the main attraction of heaven. In comparison to his glory and greatness and beauty, everything else fades into insignificance. In our eternal home, we will be with God who is the glorious one at which we were created to desire and enjoy and worship. God will be in heaven. We will be with him. He is the glorious one, the God that we will be with in heaven and and continuing to think about these things, we will be with our generous father. We'll be with God in heaven, who is our generous Father. The title Father is a familiar one. It can be easy to rush past the wonder that God, our Creator, is also our perfect heavenly Father. God is the Father of fathers, He's the first Father. The Bible says that every family on heaven and earth derives the relationship of Father to children from God's relationship with his people. He is father. And so my fatherhood of my children is just a picture pointing, it's that shadow, it's like a type pointing to God who is the father over all fathers and of all fathers. In other words, God's fatherhood came first. And every earthly father is is at best a shadow of our heavenly father. And, And as a shadow, The best earthly fathers can only point dimly to his perfection. And at worst, earthly fathers can be distortions of the perfection of our heavenly father, pointing us to the lack that we have. God has fatherly compassion on us as his children. God sees all the details of our lives, knows our needs before we even ask him. It's like a father can anticipate what his children need, need, and then he meets those needs, knowing before we even ask him. He forgives our offenses against him. He teaches and trains us in righteousness. He rewards us for those things done out of loving obedience to him. God as a father knows how to give good gifts to his children and he gives generously without holding back. He is an eager, loving father who longs to be with his children and for his children to be with him. And even in saying that, you could have the wrong picture 
right? It's not the, the needy father who's, who's just sitting at home lonely, wishing his children would pop in and give him a, give him a call or drop in and just give him five minutes of their time. Uh, God is not needy in that way, but yet he loves to have his children and longs for them to come and be with him. The Bible gives a picture of our heavenly home our heavenly father in our heavenly home, he gives a, it gives a picture of this like a lavish, joyful family gathering. A feast together with those that we love. And what's great is that we don't need to cook or clean up afterward. Our heavenly home, a, joy, a lavish, joyful family gathering where we will experience perfect communion, intimate fellowship with one another and with our God. In the parable that Jesus taught, as, as the father eagerly looked for the homecoming of his prodigal son and joyfully celebrated his arrival with feasting, so our God will generously and lavishly welcome us into his presence. Are you eagerly looking forward to being with your generous father? Heaven, our eternal home, we will be with God. And, and astoundingly, there is more relationally to look forward to than just being in the presence of our generous Heavenly Father. Because when we enter heaven, we will also be greeted by our loving Heavenly Husband, Jesus. Just as fatherhood points to God the Father, so marriage points to Christ our Savior, our loving husband. Paul makes this point in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Who would give so much for the bride and not want to welcome them to the home that he has prepared? And when the time of his return finally comes, Jesus will bring his prepared bride to the most extraordinary celebratory feast that has ever been known in the history of humanity. You don't know how good your Christmas or Christmas Eve dinner was, not sure how, how much stops you pulled out for Thanksgiving or how great your wedding reception was, but it is nothing in comparison to the celebration that Jesus has prepared for his people when he welcomes them home. And the Apostle John, again, gives us a glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 19. He heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to him, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is an astonishing statement that Jesus made to his disciples in the passage from John 14 that I read earlier. Jesus is away from us to prepare a place for us. And when he returns, he is coming back for us. And he is coming back for us because Jesus wants to be with us. Jesus, 
feet shining like furnace purified bronze, face shining like the sun, crowned in glory, wants to be with his bride. He wants to be with you. The eternal son of God, the creator of all things, the one who is ceaselessly worshipped and adored by angels is eagerly anticipating coming back to have us in his presence. I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. If I'm over here, I want you to be with me. I go over there. I want you to be with me. And that reunion with his people and his bride, hear this, that reunion, right? Being not back with with angels. He longed to be with his father. He's been reunited with his father. It's not like I can't wait to be praised. I can't wait to be off of this earth. It's his relationship with with his people that he died to save. That reunion is the joy that Hebrews 12 talks about. The joy set before him for which he endured the cross and despised its shame. Jesus is eagerly awaiting being with you. You've put your trust in him. Or do you eagerly await being with him? The greatest joy and satisfaction that we have to look forward to in our eternal home is that we will be with God. Jesus knew this better than anyone. Jesus talked about it. Jesus taught on it. Jesus prayed about it. And in John 17, we see that. We see that the greatest joy and satisfaction that we have to look forward to in our eternal home is that we will be with God. John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples to hear, for it to be passed on, for us to read and us to learn from and for it to settle in our hearts. Jesus knew all things said, this is eternal life. Here's its definition. Here's the center of it. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And later in that same passage, he makes other extraordinary, remarkable statements about that which awaits his followers, including us. Jesus wanted all of his followers to, and I'm, I'm quoting here, he wanted all of us to be one, united, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the point that he's making there. It's, it's this mystery, hard to fully fathom, it's this kind of see and get a, a, an outline of it. Our union and fellowship with our generous father and with our loving husband will somehow be a type of participation in the perfect, glorious, eternal fellowship that God has in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm not saying it becomes four in one. We don't become God. That's impossible. But yet I and, I and you, Father, you and me, me and them, them in me, there's this a fulfillment of the fellowship that we were created for. We were made in his image to not just be like him, but to be with him. That is what we are looking forward to, forever perfectly reflecting his image for his glory and thus for our eternal joy. 
heaven, our eternal home, we will be with God, the glorious one, our generous father, our loving husband. Perhaps the knowledge that we will be with God fills you with inexpressible joy. I certainly hope so. But perhaps you are distracted. Perhaps you are guarded. Perhaps you are, like a certain preacher, uh, pessimistic about things. Uh, Perhaps when you're writing a sermon at Starbucks on a Thursday, you also have to call a certain cable and internet company and get really frustrated about a billing mistake right in the midst of typing things about, I don't know, an eternal home or something like that, just as a vague illustration. Maybe you are less than perfectly hopeful. In other words, perhaps you are human. I think you are. You know why it is that we fall short of perfect joy and growing excitement about the eternal home that is waiting for us? It's because of sin. Everything, everything is tainted by sin. Everything. And admitting that, admitting the taint of sin, admitting it's like, you know, I'm I'm excited, but I'm not as excited as I should be. I'm not as excited as Peter sounds right now. It's like, well, Peter's not as excited as Peter sounds right now. Peter wants to be more excited. Peter wants to wait as eagerly as I hope it seems that I'm trying to do. And I'm not trying to lie. I'm not trying to hypocrisy. I just want to be honest. I'm not as excited as I wish I was excited. And that's because of sin. And admitting that to be true brings us to our second glorious truth about eternal, our eternal home is that we will be without sin. We will be with God. We will be without sin. Because since Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden... Sin and God's curse for sin has infected and affected all of creation from the farthest galaxy to the depths of our hearts. We are physically affected by sin and we are spiritually affected by sin and we are regularly oppressed by the sins of others, but none of those things will be true in heaven. As thoroughly as sin affects us now, we will be even more thoroughly freed from sin then. Is that an, an inverse ratio? Somehow multiplied by infinity. It probably doesn't work in math, but we're not talking about math. We will be without sin, and we can look at that in a number of different ways. First, we will be without sin in our bodies. The Apostle Paul did not live a life of comfort and ease He wrote to the Corinthians that our outer self is wasting away. Uh, This was no doubt due to his experiences as a servant of Christ. He wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke of the fact that he had far greater labors and far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I frequent journeys, not in a car. No air conditioning or heat, leather seats. There's air conditioned seats. Those are great. Paul walked. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. <laughs> danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, 
Danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. I'm not sure of all the details of your life, but anybody want to contend with that? You got four shipwrecks, six beatings, stoned twice. Anybody? I'm sure some people have suffered similarly, but I know I haven't. It's not a whose life is worse contest that we're having with the Apostle Paul here. And I mention all the sufferings that Paul experienced in his body to make it that much more significant when he wrote in Romans 8, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Are you tired? Not just sleepy, but weary? Are you sick? Not just cold and flu, sick and occasional sniffle, but are you chronically sick, perhaps terminally sick? These things are consequences of sin that have corrupted God's very good creation. The Apostle John was the last living apostle. Tradition tells us each of the other apostles died violent deaths as martyrs for the gospel. John himself escaped that, but did not escape the suffering. He himself, he suffered physically, even as an old man. He was imprisoned on a cold, rocky island fortress as an old man. And it was there on the island called Patmos that John received the vision from Jesus that we now know as the book of Revelation. He had seen great suffering in the lives of his friends. You imagine having received a letter wondering, I wonder how Peter's doing. I wonder how Thomas is doing. I wonder how this person is doing. And then finding out via letter, oh, they also were executed, martyred for the same gospel that you are preaching. And friend after friend, decade after decade, dying over for the cause of Christ. And others, his, his children, he loved the, the people that he preached to as a, as a father loves his children. He writes of that. I love you, little children. I long for you. I long to see your faith grow and then seeing some of them fall away and seeing some of them suffer and seeing some of them martyr. John was also, like Paul, not without suffering. He knew this personally. So how much greater does that make it when God promises to him in the vision of Revelation that God himself will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes? Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for those former things they have passed away. In heaven, our eternal home, we will not be too tired to worship. We will not get sick, and neither will anyone else. There will be no aches or pains that will limit us in our enjoyment of the new earth that God has prepared for us. Our minds will be ready uh, to receive and to remember God's truth. There will be no more death. There will be no separation from loved ones and no end to the enjoyment that God has prepared for us. Isaiah wrote about this. Paul quoted him in the New Testament. He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So that means that the best I'm going to try to do, quoting scripture to you about what it'll be like, it's not even close better than you can even think about. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also emphasizes the glory of our resurrection bodies that we will be given at Christ's second coming. Sorry, we did Romans 8, now 1 Corinthians 15. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No sin that has infected and have affected us, no sin in our bodies will limit the joy of our eternal home. Be no sin in our bodies, no sin in our souls. As frustrating as physical limitations caused by sin can be, that's not what I'm looking forward to the most. It's not just that I won't be tired or I won't be sick. As I can't wait for full freedom and deliverance and salvation from the sin in my soul, the, the lingering effects of sin, sin that has been forgiven, but yet I continue to battle. The Bible calls it our flesh. I get distracted from worship. I love worshiping at Risen King. There's no place that I'd rather be than here singing alongside of you. Love our worship team. Love the songs. Love, love hearing this place filled with songs. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that joy, I'm just thinking about something else. Like, why? Because of the sinfulness in my soul and in my heart. We get distracted from worship. We get disinterested in the things of the Lord. We, we stop caring so much about his word and fellowshipping with him in prayer. I choose anger or selfishness or covetousness or fearing man, uh, longing for praise and attention and constant affirmation. Instead of it being risen King Church, I just wish it was Peter Church. It's just a horribly sinful thing, but it's just a reality. We just want all of that to be about us. Foolishness, blindness. I want my own glory rather than God's. I don't want to bend my knee in service to God and others. I want to be served. And how often has our love for other lesser things robbed our attention and affection from God? Do you, do you feel that? Here's why I say that. Because it won't happen like that in heaven. Can you imagine? Like, no, no distraction. Not to say, oh, come behold the wondrous mystery. I wonder what I'm having for lunch this afternoon. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Did I lock the front door when I left today? And it's not sinful to think, so what's lunch? What's this, right? But the distraction, failing to see the the perfection of the beauty and glory of God, uh, that is sin in our souls affecting us in that way. That won't happen. It won't be like, oh, I can't wait. This is nice. I, I can't wait for the next thing. We will be set entirely free from all of the sin in our souls when Christ brings us into his presence. We will be remade as new and sinless. Sin distracts us. It also leaves us ignorant, though. It doesn't just take your attention elsewhere, but it leaves you short of those things because we, we fail to realize how great our sin is. 
We fail to realize how great God's holiness is, and thus we fail to realize how great his mercy is toward us in Christ. If you don't know the extent of your sin, if you don't know the extent of his mercy for your sin, then you're going to fall short of, of worshiping him. But not then. Jonathan Edwards wrote, the, the saints will be sensible then how great the redemption was, much more sensible than they are now. For then they will be sensible how terrible the destruction is that they were redeemed from and shall know by experience how glorious the happiness which was purchased for them. So then when we see everything as it truly is, not just blinded by physical realities, but understanding and seeing spiritual truths as well, then when we see the lake of fire reserved for those who have not obeyed the gospel, and we see, yeah, I deserved that, but I've been rescued not because of anything that I did. And when we see the glories of heaven and see the difference between those two things, knowing that what we finally have received, not having earned it, finally understanding what lavish grace really means, then we will appreciate it. Then we will respond in worship. And I bet he's thinking about it right now. There's a favorite hymn of Brother Lowell Wilkes written by Robert Murray McShane in the 19th century. And his favorite verse of that song, if I recall correctly, goes like this. When I stand before the throne, it's up there, sorry. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. When I see thee as thou art and love thee with unsinning heart, finally, then, Lord, shall I fully know, and not till then, how much I owe. As much as Christ became sin for us, we will become his righteousness in heaven. We have it now by decree. We will know it then by experience. Also, our our full appreciation of Christ's death for us will finally not be hindered by sin. And since those who have been forgiven much love much, Our love for God will no longer be hindered by sin or by our ignorance of how great our sin is. And Jonathan Edwards wrote of this as well. He wrote and preached on, on, uh, on heaven a lot. He says, with respect to the degree of their love, it is perfect. Having no pride or selfishness to interrupt or hinder its exercises, our hearts shall be full of love. That which is in the heart right now as but a grain of mustard seed, in this world, shall there be as great as, as a great tree. The soul which only had a little spark of divine love in it in this world shall be, as it were, wholly turned into love and be like the sun, not having a spot in it, but being wholly a bright, ardent flame. The fruit of the Spirit that we long to see produced in us now of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all of those things will then be ours absolutely, without limit and with no flesh to oppose it. We will be without sin in our bodies and we will be without sin in our souls And we will be without sin in our, maybe we could call it our surroundings. Here on earth, our own sin affects us. And the sins of others affect us as well. We're sinned against, not just do we sin. That makes life bad enough, but we're sinned against 
also, but not there in our eternal home. There, we will, there will be absolutely no sin in our presence. Not only will we not be sinners and sinful, but no one else will be either. The Apostle John makes that clear in Revelation 21. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, but nothing unclean will ever enter the holy city Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. No longer will there be anything accursed, a perfect place. What comfort this has been and is to those who have been deeply hurt physically or spiritually or emotionally suffering at the sinful hands of others. Not then, not there. And once we, all, once we are in our eternal home, it will never again be the place that we will sin or anyone else will sin against us. Never again. We will be with God and we will be without sin. Our eternal home is our eternal hope. Talked about hope a little bit on Christmas Eve. It's, it's the waiting with eager excitement and anticipation for the promises to be fulfilled. Everything that I said, which is just such a shadow, be like I barely even talked about it at all in comparison to its reality, but it is coming. We will experience it. Those who have gone before us, dying in Christ, dying in faith, are enjoying this now and, and awaiting more glory that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. Our eternal home, heaven, with God and without sin, is, is what we are hoping for, that which we are waiting for eagerly and with certainty and with confidence. And Advent is a season of, of waiting, of eager anticipation, of anticipating that which has come, that which we are expecting. And for thousands of years, God's people waited and hoped for the Messiah to come, and he did come, and he lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose from the dead for us, and he ascended to heaven for us to prepare a place for us. And for the last 2,000 years and counting, God's people have continued to wait and to hope for our Savior and King to return as he promised. And when he comes, he will take us to himself, that where he is, we may be also. Faith in Jesus is the only way we can get to the glories of heaven. If you, if you despise and remain in enmity with God now, right, this is kind of like, not just, oh, I struggle, I know, I, I desire that, but I, but I struggle with, with sin, right? But if you're just like, I don't, I don't care about being with God, that doesn't sound like heaven for me, then, then you're probably not headed there. Then you have no eternal hope if it's not in Christ. You need deliverance from, from the penalty for your sins. You need to know that now through faith in Jesus, no physical suffering, no, no sin in our souls, no sin of those affecting us. That's not a, just a universal promise to all humans. Jesus said, Here, here's where I'm going. Father's house, going to come back and bring you 
with me. And, and here's the way that you get there. And it's not just dying and or being a good person. We're not good people. Jesus told us the only way we can get to the glories of heaven through faith in him. He says it this way in John 14 again. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we trust in, we love Jesus now. We look forward to getting to spend eternity with him. Another Christmas is over. We eagerly waited for dinners and presents, and now we've eaten and opened and enjoyed. And maybe now the post-Christmas reality has started to set in. Nothing was as exciting or satisfying as you hoped it would be. Maybe you've got a couple extra days out of it if you've got really good presents. I haven't gotten to enjoy my main present yet, so I'm still excited. But it was not as good as you hoped it would be because our minds and hearts were created by God to be set, to be fixed, to be glued to something beyond this world. The world which is to come or our eternal home and that place will be fully satisfying forever because we will be with God and we will be without sin. And this day and this coming year and the year after that and the year after that until Christ calls us home or comes back for us, may God increase our hope in him and in our eternal home with him. Father, that is, that is my prayer for, for myself, for my family, for, for this church. May we long to see Jesus. May we not be satisfied with our earthly home, with our earthly possessions. May we not have treasures here may, that, that, that occupy and, and possess us, that become idols for us. Would you free us from those things? Do you work hope in our, our souls? Increase our faith in Jesus, our love for him. Do that which is pleasing in your sight to, to draw our affections upward where Christ is seated at the right hand. Um, he, is, he is our hope. He is our Savior. Oh, sanctify us. Amen.